May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Sunday's gospel is a continuation from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Are we ready? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so it's a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. But before we get into what Jesus has to say in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, we have to remind ourselves of the big picture, the first reading from Deuteronomy, where God presents to the people whom he has just delivered from slavery in Egypt, led them to the promised land, and now he puts before them a choice. The way of the Lord, following my law, leads to life. Departing from my law, choosing to go your own way, leads to death. The Lord is your life. He is the source of our life. All good, all blessings flow from that. This is not like the naughty and nice of the Christmas carol. To be naughty, you get punished. To be nice, you get rewarded. It's much more intrinsic than that. You follow the way of the Lord, you will have life, and that life will produce abundance and blessing. If you don't follow the Lord, the abundance and the blessings will be destroyed. This is a law. This is not an arbitrary assignment. Like the law of gravity, what goes up must come down. It's just built into the nature of things. And so the moral law is also a very real law. You follow the moral law, things go well. You are wholesome. You have good relationships. You don't follow the law. It leads to destruction and death. Now, as the reading points out, prosperity is part of this law. Prosperity is a blessing, a result of living according to God's law. The problem comes up with choice. Notice that choice is central in this passage. So it's not like God created Adam and Eve in the garden, and that was plan A, and everything was going fine, but they messed it up, so now we switch to plan B with the Savior. No, the choice was there for Adam and Eve, and the choice is there for God's people. The choice is essential because without choice there is no love and there is no responsibility. So the choices we make are real and they have real consequences, and so the prosperity part gets tangled up with the consequences of the evil choices made by ourselves and others. So prosperity is part of God's plan, but it's all still being worked out in this conglomeration of choices that people make. False gods, so God warns the people not to follow the gods of Canaan or the gods or any other gods. False gods do lead to death. So the Canaanites practiced human sacrifice. The Celts practiced human sacrifice. Many other false gods demanded human sacrifice. And you can study other religions and the impact they have on their societies and find that in many ways they lead to death, not to life. Now, that's the big picture. You might say this is the basic. This is the Ten Commandments, basically. Live according to these. Your right relationship with God, your right relationship with your fellow man, you will have a harmonious, a peaceful, a prosperous society. 
But Jesus presents us with something deeper, something more. We might call this advanced following the law of God. Matthew grouped a lot of teachings of Jesus about what it means to be a child of God, what it means to live in the kingdom of God into these passages. I would imagine that Jesus preached this sermon or big parts of this sermon hundreds of times in all the different towns and villages that he went to. Matthew is here grouped together as he does in other places in his gospel, the teachings of Jesus that relate to being a child of God. Now, the last verse from last Sunday's reading, gospel, should probably be the first verse for this Sunday's gospel as well. That is where Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, that must have been quite a shock for his followers to hear. The Pharisees didn't have much else to do except follow the rules the ritual observances, the temple sacrifices, and teach other people what they should do and not do. And Jesus said, you ordinary people, you fishermen who spend 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day in a boat, you farmers trying to get a little something to grow in the rocky soil around Galilee, you've got to be more righteous than that. How in the world is that going to happen? And so in these teachings, last week and this, we begin to see Jesus is saying <clears throat> the righteousness righteousness is not based on external observances. The greater righteousness that Jesus wants, that God wants, is the righteousness of a right heart. And that is where he goes below in each of these. You have heard it was said, but I say to you, he gets more to the heart of the matter, to your intentions. So the first subject he takes up is anger, based on, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, I say to you, do not have anger towards your brother in your heart. And brother, I hear some more contemporary translations say, brother or sister. I don't like that because that kind of narrows your focus to members of your own family. Brother or brethren is meant in the sense of a larger community, of us of our social networks and societies that we're in. Anger against any of these, not just members of your own family. Anger is wrong. Why? Not just because it can lead to external acts of violence, but it can also be very destructive of the person against whom you direct your anger. Name-calling kills the spirit too much criticism it kills the self-esteem, the expectations of your children, your grandchildren, your students, whatever kind of relationship you may be in. So you can murder someone's spirit by the words that you speak. Now, there is a righteous anger, and Jesus showed that many times, but it's not an anger directed at destroying the object of your words. It's the anger directed at showing the evil or the wrong that they are doing. There is a difference. Jesus actually uses a couple of words in his example. He says, don't call your brother a fool. Don't call him raka. Well, the translation we've got now doesn't use the word raka because nobody's exactly sure what it means. So they put in, do not insult your brother. But it appears to mean 
something close to fool with the added note that you're an immoral sort of person. So there used to be a word you don't... I'm trying to think of good four-letter words. For a man, lush is not used much anymore, but if you think about it, it's kind of that. For a woman, you might call her a slut. That would be equivalent to raka. It's insulting. It means you're a fool, but it also means you're immoral. So those, that kind of name-calling... So here's our maybe our oldest warning against hate speech. Hate speech is not just a political thing. Hate speech is directed when you really hate somebody or you're conveying that impression to them that you hate them. You don't think they're worthwhile. And Jesus is very much against that. In verse 23, he shows the effect of this even on our prayer life. If we are going to pray together effectively, if we are going to gather, as two or three gathered in Jesus' name, we can't have resentments anger, bitterness, dividing us, or our prayer together is a mockery before God. We need to settle this type of thing as much as possible before we come together and offer our sacrifice. There's another warning in verse 25, which I think means something like this, where he's saying when you're on the way to court with your brother, try to work it out, try to settle matters before you get to court. And I think the lesson here is I may think I'm right, but I might not be so right as I think I am. And I may get to court, and the judge may say, I'm the worsen in the wrong, and I may suffer the consequences thereof. It would be much better if I could settle the matter with my brother before we ever get to the judge. Paul takes it in one of his letters even farther than that. Paul says it's a scandal for one Christian to sue another one in court. Surely we can find some wise people in the church to settle this matter. And that is what Matthew also advises us to do when your brother really has sinned against you. Try to speak to him. If that doesn't work, get two or three people who presumably are familiar with the situation. Try to help him see the light, if you will. If all else fails, you can take it before the community, if it's serious enough, before the church. I've only seen happened to be in a church when something like this happened, and it was a pretty serious matter. But in, in, all, in any case, we try to settle grievances, whether we've aggrieved someone else, whether they've aggrieved us as best we can within the church, within the community. In verse 27 to 30, we get to what are sometimes called one of Jesus' tough sayings. This is about adultery, committing adultery in your heart, desiring to do the deed, even if you don't have the opportunity or the guts to really do it. It's just as bad. You are still guilty. Now, that doesn't mean if I'm tempted to do something wrong, I might as well go ahead and do it because I've already thought it. No, external actions have real consequences. This is no excuse for saying, well, I'm just guilty already, so I might as well do it. Not at all. But he is saying the way you look at other men and women, especially if they are married to someone else, influences, first of all, your own relationship with your spouse, and it affects relationships between you and other families. And so the the lustful part of it can be very harmful and destructive in itself. And then he goes on to say, if your eye is leading you astray, 
pluck it out and throw it away. And if you're saying with your hand, does he mean it? First of all, he's right. It's better to enter heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two eyes. That's true. But second of all, it doesn't work. There's an old joke, which I'm not going to tell you, but the punchline is, I think I'll risk one eye. You can imagine what the story might be, if you like. It doesn't work. I can have one eye and still lust. I can have no eyes and still lust. So it doesn't work. So he must not have meant it literally. And if that's true, what did he mean? I think he meant this. First of all, we do amputate parts of our body in order to save our own life and health. We amputate a foot or a breast or a larynx or an eye. If we have cancer or some other illness where this is the only way we can preserve our lives, we do it. And Jesus is saying, I want you to be that serious about your spiritual health. I want you to be the same ruthlessness, the same doing what is necessary for the sake of your soul as you do for the sake of your body. In verse 31, he talks about, Jesus talks about sort of the victim of adultery. There's a little bit of interpretation in any translation. There's a couple ways to read it. One is, so the man gives the woman the divorce, which is usually how it happened in those days. And what's the woman to do? Well, at that time, it would be very difficult for her to go out and get a job on her own and support herself and maybe a couple children. And so she remarries. So she's almost forced to remarry and commit adultery. And he also says, the man who gave her the legal document also commits adultery when he remarries. There are, there are exceptions listed here, the sexual immorality. There are a couple of other conditions mentioned in Paul's writing, but the bottom line is still God hates divorce. Now, God doesn't just hate the divorce decree. He hates whatever it was that tore apart what God had joined together. So the divorce starts long before you ever get to court. The divorce starts with your own selfishness or taking offense or inability to work things out with your spouse. And before long, they're ripping each other apart as well as their family, and they end up in court. And because of the hardness of our hearts, sometimes the legal decree is the best we can do. But God has joined together man and wife, and he wants them to prosper and stay in that relationship. Verse 33 is a little easier to grasp. I swear you can trust me. If you ever hear somebody swearing up and down that you can trust them, what do you think? Okay. So it doesn't matter if they swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by all the hairs on their head. It's not worth much anyway. I've always been suspicious once in a while of seeing somebody with an effort to start a Christian Yellow Pages, maybe more so in the Bible Belt than around here. And I've never liked that idea. Who's the first person that's going to want to sign up? The one you can't trust. So trust is crucial. Trust is crucial in business relationships and personal relationships. When I was at Boeing and McDonnell Douglas once or twice, some executive would get caught either in, a, in an adulterous affair or an immoral business relationship, 
and the rest of us would all have to take ethics training. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) Um, But we learned some good things, and one of the best things I learned from one of the presentations, it's been shown, without a doubt, to be successful in sales, one of the three ingredients you have to have is to be able to be trusted. You have to keep your word. You have to show consideration for the people, your clients, and you have to be responsible and back up what you say. Now take these things to heart. Think about them because there's a couple more coming next week that are just as difficult. I'd like to wrap up by jumping ahead of Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The reaction is, Jesus spoke with authority. The people were amazed. Most of the scribes taught what they had been taught. And Paul talks about how he learned from the renowned scribe and Pharisee Gamaliel, and that was a big deal that gave him credibility. Jesus didn't have any degrees. They don't know where he got his wisdom. I'm sure he spent a lot of Saturday afternoons in synagogues, I'm sure he sat at the feet of rabbis, but he didn't learn from them in the same way that we as students learn from our teachers. His authority came, of course, because he was filled with the Spirit of God and was the Son of God. And the people could see this in his miracles, in his fulfillment of prophecy, and no doubt just the power of his presence. When he spoke with authority, people listened. Be perfect, he said, also in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is authoritative. Was he serious, expecting us to be perfect? Well, the verse 519, this is for me. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm not going to tell you that God grades on the curve. I don't want to be least, in, well, I'd be glad to get there, but I don't want to be least in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm not going to tell you that you can explain away any of these difficult teachings. We all have to deal with them before God. Now, I like, in that regard, I like part of the response, the psalm we said, Psalm 119. It's the longest of the psalms. It's a psalm which praises the law of God. And towards the end of the passage we read today, there are these verses. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. So he has the same problem we do. We look at the idea, we look at the teachings presented by Jesus, and we have to admit we don't always keep them. We can't always keep them. So it's not about being graded on the curve. It's not about, well, how pure and good am I? It's about obedience. It's about following. And verse 8 says, I will obey your decrees. So again, there's that choice. There's that decision. I will obey God's decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. So when I don't, Lord, please help me up. It's kind of like the man who came to Jesus and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. So I do want to follow your laws. Please help me to follow your laws. 
And I think there's one application from today's gospel which is especially relevant or appropriate today. The anger and the name-calling. We just seem to be, our society seems to be filled with anger and with name-calling. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for you shall be called children of God. Let us try to be peacemakers. No more calling people names, fools, idiots, racist pigs, pond scum. Even when it's done in jest against the Mets, it's still... (laughs) Maybe they don't qualify as pond scum anymore. It's been a long time since they were a serious rival. But at any rate, even when we're joking, you've got to be careful because our children hear it, our grandchildren hear it, our students hear it, and they think it's cool. Speak respectfully of your opponents, of people who disagree with you. It's too easy to say, well, they just don't know anything. They're ignorant. They're greedy. They're evil-minded. Not so fast. Situations are complicated. People's experiences have been so different that it's really hard for us and it takes an effort to understand one another and then even if we continue to disagree, at least we have some understanding and some basis for living together and for praying together. Discernment is required. There are evil forces at work. They need to be opposed. But the forces, as Paul said, are spiritual forces We're not to take it out on individuals with whom we might disagree. And Jesus gives us spiritual weapons. And one of them is praying for our enemies and showing respect and love for our enemies. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Amen.